Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Stanley Matthews had like a passing accuracy of 82% in the game, whereas the actual match average was... I think below 60, around somewhere in mid-50s, which if you had a Premier League to get today at that level of passing accuracy, people would be switching off the TV in terms of there's no way they would watch it. It would be classed as an awful game. Coffee and Football. My name is Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview-style podcast where each week I sit down with some of the most interesting and influential people involved in the game. The purpose of these conversations is to dig deep and get to know the person behind the title and to learn about their work, everyday routines, life experiences, and to hear their side of the story. In this episode, I speak with Gus McNabb the VP of content at Perform Group, the parent company of Opta, and one of the world's main providers of sports data and analytics. We discuss everything from how the data is collected, to the different applications, to the types of people who are ideal in those roles, to how teams apply to scouting, and whether or not Moneyball exists in football. All that and much more in this amazing episode. So without further ado, let's roll the tape. Welcome, Gus, to the Coffee and Football Podcast. Thanks very much. How are you doing today? Uh, yeah, very good. It's uh, it's a little bit brisk, but uh, not too bad at all. It's uh, it's good. It's a lot of fun to to be here, and you sort of pinch yourself that you're in New York. Really, it's fantastic. I think it's one of the uh, one of the best things I've done uh, moving to the states and New York in particular. I just absolutely love the place. Since the theme of this is coffee and football, and it's really a conversation over a cup of coffee, my first question typically is, how do you drink it? So I'm normally uh, someone who'll go for a latte and uh, a couple of sugars in it, but nothing, nothing too strange other than that, really. Nothing too fancy. No, no. Well, a latte is a bit posh from someone from Scotland, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's not too fancy in the terms of when you see people with sort of four page orders written down the side of a Starbucks cup. But it's not too bad. Do you have any uh, favourite spots in New York where you typically get it from in the morning? Be a Starbucks, to be honest, uh, just for convenience. But uh, there's a there's a good blue bottle coffee just at Bryant Park that I uh, use quite a bit as well. How would you de- describe what it is that you do specifically and what your company does to somebody who has no relation to sports or sports data in this case? So Opta have been around for years and years and uh, we've, since about 1996. And through various iterations we've gone through, um, we were actually sold to sort of Perform Group, who I currently work for now, in 2013. And we sit within Perform's content division, um, which is sort of our, our business-to-business uh, services, serving sort of sports data, uh, some of our video products, and also a lot of work within Europe to the betting and gaming community as well. 
And so we form sort of one of the key pillars in the content division there. But data is really important to perform as a business. And data sits through everything we do. So the, the media division we have in Perform Media, all of the uh, platforms that we own and operate, like sort of the sporting news here in the US, goal.com, uh, data is really important to the journalists that we work with and write for our sites, for our own match centers, and it's Opta that powers that. And for our, our latest division within Perform, Perform OTT, where we've uh, launched sort of a, a Netflix of sport, really, in Japan and Germany. Uh, the data, again, underpins a lot of the presentation, the graphics, everything we do there. So internally, there are a lot of stakeholders who sort of really drive us on in data quality. And then my role with sort of perform content here in North America, sort of uh, leading the uh, Opta brand um, and sort of doing all of our work with federations uh, like Major League Soccer, They're the clubs within that themselves in their analytics, scouting, everything they're doing there, and then more traditional media partners here in the US as well, the likes of NBC, Fox, ESPN, Telemundo, Univision, um, and, and increasingly new media platforms as well, the Snapchats, Twitters of this world too. Can you just get a little more detailed in terms of the, um, the core services, uh, the, the business model, and then some of the applications? So I think a lot of people, we hear about, you know, data and data is important and, you know, we, we see data everywhere, but how is it put into, into practice towards your clients? Yeah, absolutely. So I think within, I think we look at a couple of different use cases. So we look in the media um, and sort of our sort of real B2B business in, in the media that, that we work with here in the US, a broadcaster. We will work with the likes of an NBC or ESPN, provide them with, straightforward data feeds where all of the information we're collecting and analyzing in real time is pumped to them and that will either power a digital match center or it will power some really basic things in the broadcast so what's the possession how many shots on target how many shots off target seasonal statistics that sit there all within a, a very simple xml data feed that's pumped out that way the next level on top of that is is where we've really Built our credibility as a business um, is in the editorial and narrative. We use the data to tell stories because otherwise it's a little bit boring um, and it's just a bus timetable and a pretty dry spreadsheet and, and not that really exciting, engaging, and, and not what sport is, which is to celebrate outstanding achievement, passion, everything like that. And it, it's making sure we, we use the numbers to tell a narrative, to inform people um, and do things in the right way. So that's in the form of notes that go to research teams at the likes of NBC, and then Arlo White, Lee Dixon, Graham Lasso, the guys that are commentating uh, on the Premier League on NBC, will use that to sort of as the basis of their research. Um, they may have additional sort of more, more sort of human factors where they've spoken to a player in pregame or they've spoken to a team's PR guy and, and got some context around certain situations. But we're there sort of giving those sort of real nuggets, sound bites of information, but quantify performance for these guys there. The, the other side of it, and, and there are so many sort of different pillars to the service on it, we're not going on too much, is the within the team side of the, the business and our Opta Pro in our brand that really, really looks uh, after the teams and their needs. Uh, and there's sort of a, a three-pronged uh, philosophy there. So it's sort of analyze, prepare, discover. 
So analyze being looking at your own performance, reflect on what you've done. Prepare being look at your opposition and your opposition scouting. And discover being look at soccer, which again, very different to the US sporting landscape. Look at soccer as a global sport. There are players living all over the world now. And we can help teams with their filtering and scouting to sort of really, really narrow that. And not necessarily by the top of the data-driven criteria or the player that's at number one in that list be the guy you should buy, but maybe the top 10 on that list are where you should send your scouts and look for cost efficiencies and savings rather than going, we're going to go and sign a centre-back from Norway and send in three scouts to Norway to watch 15 games over three weeks. It's better to do it this way, to narrow the focus, use data, use video and associated data products that link together, and then go and see these guys in person, do that further deep dive on them. But this helps with filtering process and, and narrows that funnel. How is the data collected? So it's our own proprietary collection system that's been developed over the years um, and is constantly developed every year in consultation with our media partners uh, and our professional teams so that it, it, it really really drills down into exactly what they need and it, and takes into account changes in the game as well. So it's it's a two-person collection system where one guy's on the home team, one guy's on the away team. They are So it is actually two people sitting and watching every single game and collecting yeah. that. Yeah. So it's very labor intensive and when you look at the Premier League 380 game season, you've got two guys that are there um analyzing analyzing every single sort of game. The way that we normally split it up is each analyst is given a team for the season. That helps with player recognition so they're able to spot if it's a particularly dodgy haircut, whether it's a, a flash new pair of bright yellow boots or orange boots, whether they wear a, a long sleeve thermal top underneath, whether they wear gloves. These kind of small triggers that in addition to the formation and things that they can instantly recognize the player and who he is to make the data and put that bit quicker. Um, so you've got one guy on home, one guy on away. Those guys are communicating the whole way through the game with each other just because there's a number of elements in the system that need to match. So for every dual one, there must be a dual lost. For every take on one, there must be a take on lost. Who's throw, who's foul, these kind of things. Very, very quickly, the guys are constantly communicating to make sure they have that right. And then the third guy in the process is there's a checker on every match so that he then helps verify all the key events and the data that's there. And the guys are doing that in real time. Anything from around about sort of uh, 750 events per team, per match, um, right the way up to if you've got a Barcelona and they're playing their very, very quick passing style, that, that event count can ramp up very quickly. And with that, I assume that you need to constantly be bringing in new analysts. And I guess, one, how do you do that? And how, what kind of a filtering system do you have? Because to your point, they need to be quality and they need to be able to spot, you know, very, very specific things within games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that people always ask is that that sounds great. I get to watch football every day. Can I do that? <laughs> I'd love to come and work for you guys. Um, and it's actually doing the guys that, that do the analysis for us a little bit of a disservice because the skill set they have is a little bit of a hybrid of a, a gamer because of the, the reactions, how quickly they need to input the information 
they're all pretty much touch typists um, using our sort of keyboard and short keys and the mouse to input all of the data. So they have this gamer sort of element and skill to them, but also just unbelievable football recognition and, uh, and knowledge uh, generally. So the process in the UK, we have a guy who used to work with, this, uh, used to work with me in our, in our London office who's actually a, a teacher by trade and then came out of education and, and worked for us who devised our training program. So it starts with a sort of getting people in, shortlisting in the standard way with CVs, who to look like the right candidates. We make that call. We then invite sort of large groups of people, uh, probably around 10 or 12 at a time, to sort of come in and we take them through what it is they would be doing, give them a bit of a presentation on the company, everything there. They'll then fill in a quiz that sort of tests their, their football knowledge, which I have to admit, I do terribly on every time I try it. Um, but in terms of that's that's the difference in their skill set versus someone like myself who sits in the uh, more of the commercial team uh, and consulting team within the clubs. So they'll do that quiz. They'll then have a, a go on the tool straight away, try and input some passes. Um, and we're looking not necessarily at the speed that it takes them to do that, but making sure that their accuracy is pretty good on day one. That then gets filtered and another couple of other filters uh, once we've seen how good they are on the collection tool. And then once we get there, we, we normally get a core training squad of around about 10 to 15 guys in any intake. And they will need to do around about sort of 50 hours of training on the tool, trying to collect matches. And there's quite a high attrition rate from that. So if we had 15 guys start the course, we would be delighted if we got a, a sort of a 50% pass rate at the end of it because it, it is a tough skill. And the guys that we then do get, because they've spent that time and put the commitment in to do the training, we've got analysts who've worked with us for years and still continue to work with us when they go off into, shall we say, like more sort of formal full-time employment. And they still come back and work with us because they, they love what they do. They're incredibly good at it. And, and they've done a great job for us as a company over the years. What's a typical day for you? Take me through the the first 90 minutes from the moment when, when you get up. My day is a bit different from some of the other guys because obviously I'm here in, in New York, so I'm in a remote office. So in the morning when I get up, there's normally a raft of uh, 50, 60, 70 emails on, on various things from guys in What the time UK. do you get up? Me, I, I'm normally about 6, 6.30, something like that, if it's not before. It's normally get up. Rattle through a few of the emails in bed that, that I that I need to. I mean, getting a response into the UK means that we'll we'll get moving on things a hell of a lot quicker. We'll get that done. Get up, throw on a tracksuit, and uh, get out and walk the dog, which is fun in the winter in New York. Um, it's a lot better in the summer, but it's uh, get that done, and then it's a case of get ready, jump on the bus, jump on the shuttle bus up to. Uh, up to the subway uh, for me at Columbus Circle and then head into the office for around about uh, 8.45, 9 a.m. with my cup of coffee, obviously. Do you have any specific routines in terms of, are there any readings that you do, anything in terms of staying up to date? Yeah, I think so. I, I think increasingly I start to look at some of the sort of sport text blog blogs and things like that so sports techie sports business journal sport business insider like those kind of things i'll look at very early in the morning and then when i'm in the office i think there's still a 
there's still very much a bit of the Brit in me. I mean, I'd look at the BBC Sport website normally first thing. Normally, look at the uh, the sort of they do a great job in the BBC Sports gossip drop, uh, column every day. I love that one. Uh, yeah, you just it just gives you a great blast, and particularly because I don't get all the British papers and things like that here, which I used to love when I worked in the UK office, uh, picking up where it was a, a free paper on the tube, the yeah. Metro, or picking up sort of on a, on a Monday morning sort of the Times or the Telegraph and some of their great coverage from the weekend. I do miss that. You can get them online. It's great having them online, but I miss having the physical paper uh, on, the, on the way to work in the morning and, and going through that a little bit. I want to get back to um, what it is that you do today in your role and, and with your company in, in just a little bit, but uh, I want to rewind the tape and bring it back to, to the beginnings. Uh, where did you grow up? So... I was uh, I was born in Scotland and sort of lived there till I was like two or three years old. Where I was born just outside Edinburgh in a place called Linlithgow. So it's a, it's a really nice little commuter town, uh, twenty five minutes from Edinburgh. Great place. Uh, still have family friends that live there. It's a great little town. I love going back and and seeing it from time to time. And I was there very early. Don't really have any memories of it sort of in those early points and then my dad's job moved down to uh, London with the Royal Bank of Scotland and I lived in and around sort of Essex East London um, from right up until I was 18 so went to school down there loved it and then at sort of 18 really I, I then sort of moved back up sticks and, and back up to Scotland and went to university in Edinburgh at Harriet Watt University. In order to get to know you a bit more personally, is there anything I need to know about the place where you grew up? Billericay. Um it's it's an interesting spot um, in Essex, in Essex. It's a it's a football daft town. You've got your usual sort of creep from London out to the, the sort of the suburbs in Essex. Uh, grew up, went to school with a lot of uh, West Ham fans because uh, the school was in sort of Hornchurch in in uh, Hornchurch in, in Essex, which, again, borders in really into sort of West Ham country and not too far at all from there. So a lot of friends who grew up in sort of in Dagenham, in Romford and, and around that area. So there's a lot of West Ham fans at school, but equally a lot of uh, Spurs and, and Arsenal fans and, and things there. I mean, I, I really fond memories of uh, a group of lads from school who are all Arsenal fans. And when uh, Arsenal had that, couple of years when uh, Highbury was sort of not not suitable for European competition pre the Emirates day, sort of going to the old Wembley for Arsenal's Champions League games and sort of seeing uh, Arsenal Barcelona at the old Wembley and Arsenal Fiorentina and it's one of the Swedish sides as well, actually, uh, in the group. AAK. Like, yeah, AAK. Yeah, I, rem I remember that group stage very well. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I don't think we were particularly good at that group stage at all, but uh, I think I went to all the uh, all the home games at Wembley there that year, and um, would would grow up just just loving football and sort of. So you, you became an Arsenal fan in other ways. I did, yeah. I, I became I became an Arsenal fan once we moved down there. Um, Dad, very fortunately, had a had a very good client when he was working at the bank who had a who had a box at Arsenal, and so I, I was very very lucky and fortunate to go quite a few times. Where in the year that sort of Arsenal won the league in 1991 and sort of watched Arsenal there in some some great games in fact sort of in in the old English first division uh, when they won that league 
some some glamorized sort of Arsenal Coventry um, in midweek, I think, and things like that. But yeah, it, it was a lot of fun, and I've always loved football growing up. My dad, it was sort of his love growing up, and Arsenal is certainly my team in uh, from growing up where I did in London, spending so much time there. But if you saw my office here in New York, I've not got an Arsenal scarf up or anything else like that. It's my dad's hometown club that's up. It's a, it's a Dundee scarf that's there. And it's always every year when I go back and see him now in Scotland, it's uh, really love going back to, uh, to watch Dundee and get to Dens Park and watch for him. Being here is the MLS where you kind of focus the most? I think if we look at, again, the history of the business, we, as Opta, um, when I say the history of the business, as Opta, we moved here and created an office here as a result of our partnership with Major League Soccer. That was undoubtedly the driver. We set up collection in their offices. We lived and worked with them there day in, day out, up until January of last year when we moved into the Perform office on uh, Park Avenue South. And that was just fantastic to have that close working relationship with the league from day one, to be absolutely embedded with them and assist them across everything they do. The way now that we operate with a league it is phenomenal and the number of different touch points we hit. So that can be from branding and marketing. We had a fantastic project that was led by uh, David Bruce and Howard Handler on the on the marketing side last year for the MLS Cup, where we capitalized on the fact that we had gone back and analyzed all of uh, Major League Soccer's previous MLS Cups. So the, this being the 20th season of MLS Cup, we had the previous 19 finals of data, of story, of narrative there. Uh, one of guys that works for me here in New York, Oliver Miller-Farrell, uh, Oliver looked into that data and sort of really found what was the story for each game, be it a player, a goal, um, a, a moment, uh, a particular time frame, and really sort of selected them and, and wrote pretty solid, well-rounded briefs that we then shared with uh, four artists, and each artist was given uh, between four and five finals each. So they then created these amazing data-driven visualizations of each MLS final with uh, a gallery that was there in Columbus on site on match day within the hospitality area. It was also there, a little gallery at the party uh, the night before the final. And a really, really nice example of how data can be used, not just in the moment and in the live, but looking back um, and analyzing and quantifying past performance as well. And and celebrating history and heritage. So that project on, on the marketing side was just fantastic. The digital side, we continue to do a huge amount uh, with the digital team that's led by Chris Schlosser up on 38th Street in that old office that we really miss actually sitting with those guys. And there's just great work coming out of it. I think the the way that they're set up to produce content and speak about the league and storytell is fantastic and, and very, very different to what we have in a number of sites globally. But I think more and more leagues are looking at what MLS have done there in their storytelling on their own sites and making the league website less of a collection of press releases 
and more more of telling what's going on in the competition. Um, what are the real high points in fan culture, and and what are people doing there? The the work we do with digital is very broad, and that it could be a new player transferred into the league. We'll work with their research team to provide some information and context that we have on that player globally. It may be some articles where we quantify performance of standout players, looking at even things like expected goals and some of our more advanced metrics in the golden boot race. It really varies a huge amount across the digital side. And then one of the areas that I'm really passionate about, really enjoy working with at Major League Soccer, is the competition department and the work that they do, working with Jeff Agus and looking at benchmarking the MLS and how we can help them to sort of reach that mission to be a, a league of choice by 2022 and be one of the top leagues in, in the world. Uh, we can quantify exactly where they are across a key number of metrics, work with the league to develop some proprietary formula that they, they look at from proprietary, again, metrics, data points that they look at to quantify where they are in the global football landscape. And that's a really forward-thinking, original, interesting approach that they've taken there that it's very easy to have these goals and to just say, right, that's great, this is what we're going to go and do. Um, but how do you measure it? How is it trackable? How is it a smart goal? And by doing that and working with us, I think it's a really, really interesting way of doing it. I think it's the correct way of doing it, quite frankly. Um, and it gives them some real touch points and solid pieces of information there. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you, that you mentioned all that because it seems to me and, and just having been here for a bit and being able to see the sort of evolution of the MLS in how progressive they are across how they commercialize things across marketing, digital initiatives and, and so on. And you touched a little bit on obviously work with some of the, the other big leagues out there. What are the, I mean, it seems like the MLS, they're, they're very open to that and, and they have a way of adopting it and they have a structure internally as well to be able to handle that and do something with it. What are like the main differences with, with other leagues or what, are, you know, is there any kind of pushback that you get from other leagues versus uh, someone like the MLS? I think one of the areas we can see is in the, the sort of work we do with clubs on recruitment and scouting. So within our MLS contract, we have an element of it where they receive a certain number of player scouting reports a year, which are divided up amongst the clubs. So each club receives a certain number of scouting reports. So any player we have in our database, they can request a report on him to sort of do that initial filtering aspect. That exists and that is paid for centrally by the league. Um, whereas as an initiative to get clubs really thinking in this manner, looking to gain competitive advantage, turn over small stones to find that sort of gem, that diamond in the rough kind of thing. That's not really something that exists in leagues around the world because they, they don't operate on the same single entity system. It's teams operating very much in isolation um, and doing things on their own in, in those worlds of recruitment, scouting, performance analysis. Whereas here, there is much more of a desire um, and I think it's probably because we're still very much in a growth phase here in America um, to sort of like the, the tide rises all boats kind of thing. Um, and there's much more of a spirit of collaboration. And the teams will do that. 
And on top of that, teams will have separate contracts with ourselves for data, for recruitment, for scouting, for some bespoke analysis that our team of data analysts may do. But that normally sits very much on the club side and not a, a Premier League, a sort of Eredivisie initiative or anything like that, whereas that is very much a league initiative here in MLS. I think that's, I think that's a major strength of the league, particularly, as we said before, in this growth phase. Um, they want to, they want to grow by doing things smart and methodically. And the data allows them to do that in player recruitment and scouting. Uh, and, and increasingly, so from the league starting that process with us three and a half, four years ago, we've seen the volume of data analysts, of performance sort of video analysts as well, but increasingly pure data analysts within clubs. The number of clubs that have this on staff is, has significantly increased. Are there any teams that you can talk about that stand out that are really progressive and, and leading in these initiatives? There's a lot within the league. There's a lot and there's probably some that we aren't working with who are doing it as well. I think that the very obvious one to speak about is, is Toronto because the, the work that we did with Toronto dates back to the fact that Devin Pluer, who is their uh, director of analytics at the club, used to work for us here at Opta in New York and then left uh, around about January last year to go and work up at Toronto for Tim Bezbachenko and, and the guys there at the club. But there's so many. I mean, the, there's so many great news stories. Um, Atlanta, hiring an analyst sort of back in sort of January of this year before they've got a coach and sort of to work with Carlos, Paul McDonough, Darren. And so that that's phenomenal that they've sort of taken that on and they're looking at actually what style do we want to play a football? What kind of player do we want to attract? And everything there before they're looking at a coach um, because that's a really solid foundation for the future. It's a real discussion point in the, the structure of clubs in terms of the the whole who has the final say. Is it the coach? Is it a general manager? Is it a committee on players and, and these kind of things? It's a really big discussion point in football, but I think the route that Atlanta have gone and the work we're doing with them right now is really exciting to see them say very, very certainty and with a great degree of confidence and real leadership from sort of Darren Eels and, and Carlos at the club in as president and technical director, this is the route we're going to do. We're going to identify what we want to play, what wins within the league, and we're going to quantify that. And then we're going to look at building the team around that and things. And that's, I think, very exciting that that mindset is, is prevalent. And I've highlighted Atlanta there in Toronto, but I could rattle off so many clubs, be it Porrig Smith at Colorado, who we do a lot of work with, who's come across from UEFA. It could be some of the work we've done at Philadelphia Union over the last couple of years in, in their performance. It could be Ali Curtis and, and Victor, at the Red, who's the analyst at the Red Bulls, and the phenomenal work that they do. Tim Crawford at New England Revolution, being there as a data scientist and data analyst for a number of years. And that, again, is a fascinating one. And it, it's born out of the fact that the team president is an MIT graduate and very, very much is a data geek at heart as well and, and what we would say one of us um, and, and loves this way of quantifying and looking to to break game plans down. There's so many teams are doing great work here and I've, I've probably missed people. I've missed, I've missed Portland who went and won it all last year uh, and the work we do with them and they've got a fantastic, absolutely fantastic 
intern in who's been working with the club for a while now uh, as he continues his studies on data analytics. So there's, there's so many good people working throughout MLS. Seattle have, again, someone who, very interesting background, isn't it? Ravi was an engineer at Microsoft who's left to follow his passion, which is sport and soccer. He's an absolutely crazy Villarreal fan, but he he made the decision that that's where he wants to be. This is what he wants to work in. And he brings those skills from industry to the sport. And that's very, very exciting and engaging. I want to hear about the partnership that you have uh, or the direct work that you're doing with uh, Columbia University. How did that come about first? And, and then how does that look like? So it came about in a, again, a very... A very American way, actually. Very networky. Um, in the, I was speaking at the Ivy League Sports Symposium in Princeton. I want to say in November, let's say November 2014 or so. It was around about then. And I was on a panel with the CEO and founder of Catapult and this chap, Vince Gennaro. And Vince is uh, the president of Sabre, the sort of sabermetrics and sort of present of the statisticians in baseball and we were looking at some of the things that we were doing in soccer and some of our teams was using some of the things that catapult were doing across multiple sports with training load and some of the work that vince had done over the years with his writing his, his book diamond dollars his work on mlb network and then latterly his his work taking over the sports management program at Columbia University. And one of the things that Vince was very keen on was looking at how does he take the course to be less American and US sports focused and more more of a global outlook. And that was one aspect. The second aspect was that everyone who he'd spoken to from industry said, give us people who know how to make rational decisions and use data to make decisions. So we had various coffees, chats, uh, the odd beer here and there, just discussing how that could look as a partnership, whether it was just a straightforward, right, here you go, Vince, here's some data for the class. And in the end, we've got to the point where we've created a, a course with them. And Vince and Coral, who works there at the university, and Oliver, again, who works with me here in New York, we've, we've pulled together a curriculum on the analytics of global sport Well, what we're doing is we're giving guys sort of an insight into what goes on at a club level with use of data and also bringing in sort of practitioners from from the industry. So Devon from Toronto came down and spoke to the class sort of around 10 10 days ago uh, on Monday earlier of this week. Podrick Smith from the Rapids flew into town and spoke to the guys about his role, his background actually at at UEFA and the work he did on financial fair play and and sort of rule setting and structures to sort of operate then in a competitive environment with the various rules and regulations that you have. And then we're also setting them challenges with the data, like create using the data to sort of say to us, what would be the optimal MLS roster from a value standpoint, uh, from a standpoint of just general team composition, what are the factors you need to consider in what if we lose player X to international competitions? So reigning MVP, Sebastian Giovinco, everyone would go, yeah, fantastic. Let's take him in our team. Great. No problem at all. 
one of our designated players taking it against the cap hit, but what about his production this year? What what will you sort of add as a factor for him potentially going with Italy to the Euros and things like that? So looking at all of these things that, yep, yeah, that's great. That's one player in the squad of 28. But who's the backup? How do we play within this consistent style structure if we're missing this absolute superstar for three, four, five games um, within sort of June, July? And these kind of challenges are, are really interesting, engaging, and for me um, to sit there and, and see the thought process of some very, very smart people in, in the room. Uh, we are using our relationships with industry, with the with the league, with teams to really, really see what what people have come up with. And I think when we're in the detail of the data all the time. We can sometimes lose focus on the bigger picture, so it's always great to get outside views and ideas into keep throwing these things into the funnel because we're like any company, you're sometimes very focused on what you're doing at the time, and this gives us exposure to a fantastically intelligent group of people that are hopefully going to be the leaders of of sort of tomorrow within the sports industry, and it's a really, really enjoyable project to be involved in are there any other partnerships you'd like to highlight any current ones or, or upcoming ones i think one of the one of the most exciting things that we've got going on the major league soccer have been phenomenal partners for us for a number of years here in the u.s but one of the really exciting things that's going on is that our, our soccer coverage here is, is widening uh, and we will be collecting the nasl from this year We've got an agreement with Commissioner Peterson and the NASL to start covering their games. And one of the fun things they're doing is that they're also going to they're also going to look at five golden era games a year. So we're going to get the the video and the footage from them from some of the old historic NASL games and and celebrate some real legends from that league. So we can quantify how good was Pele when he played at the Cosmos, Beckenbauer. Um, George Best, all of these guys. So very, 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 very interesting to bring that dimension to it as well. Um, the historic analysis is something that I think is great and I, I would love to do more of. I'm involved with a couple of projects in the UK where we went back and analysed the World Cup all the way from 1966 to the present day. Fantastic project that Sky Sports did a great special on in the UK very recently. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's quite fascinating and probably unique in that sense that you can take what you have today and you know, but also apply it to back in the days and analyze those. Well, it's it's a great way to quantify who who's good. Um, yeah. What's the difference between good and great? In it's a really really impartial way of doing it and saying how how can we compare errors? How can we compare how the game's changed. I mean, the rules have changed so much. I think that was one of the things that we noticed when the guys went back and analyzed things, mm -hmm. sort of analyzing the game and suddenly, hang on, that's a pass back. No, it's not. They were allowed to do that back then and, and that existed. And you see the change in the pace of the game, in the in the accuracy. I think that Blackpool um, versus Bolton FA Cup final, Stanley Matthews had like a passing accuracy of 82% in the game. Whereas the actual match average was, I think, below 60. Um, so around somewhere in mid-50s, which if you had a Premier League to get today at that level of passing accuracy, 
people would be switching off the TV yeah. in terms of there's no way they would watch it. It would be classed as an awful game. But you see this sort of real superstar performing so much above his peers and those around him at the time. I think that ability to compare and contrast past to present is it, huge um, and offers some real, again, storytelling ability, not yeah. just this is a bus timetable, this is a train timetable of numbers. It can be visualized in really interesting, engaging ways to draw people in. Just want to touch a little bit on on social media. I mean, as as Opti, you're primarily a, a business to to business company, but through your social channels, obviously, you're you're consumer facing. And uh, I've I've followed actually Opti for for quite some time, uh, both in in Spanish and uh, and in English, and it's quite brilliant, I have to say. So, just talk to me a little bit about that. Are there any because you have a massive following there as well? Are there any goals sort of beyond? And tell me a little bit about how you structure those posts. And then are there any goals beyond that? So there's, there's two guys that really deserve massive credit for our work on, on Twitter and, and the Opta social media story. So there's a guy, Rob Bateman in the UK and also a chap called Simon Banu, who's our marketing director at Opta and now with Perform Group. Those two guys and Rob's wider team, Matt Furness, Duncan Alexander in our editorial team in London, and obviously Opta Joe himself. Uh, th- those guys really came up with the concept and there was this whole discussion, I, I believe it's just before my time really, we should be doing things on social, we should be doing things on Twitter. But we are obviously a B2B company, but our work on on Twitter and in broadcast has given us a very prominent consumer face. And we're almost like a, a safety mark is, is the way that I, I've described it to people before. We're almost like a, a safety standard in that if there's an Opta logo, if there's an Opta credit next to something, it's, it's reliable, it's trusted. It's that, that positive brand association that, to be honest, all of our data collection guys have built over the years by being accurate and, and by being good and by being timely. The style on Twitter, it was more, well, we should do something, but we should do it in, in our way and not just throw things up there. So the style of all of the Opta accounts on Twitter, um, starting with Opta Joe as our, our first, is number, fact, tag word. Um, and it's led to some absolute moments of genius in the office. Yeah where guys in it can be very very witty with that final word and equally quite damning with that final word as well sometimes uh it's just a it's one of the best in terms of and it genuinely isn't because I, i work and have such a close association to the brand i don't really know too many other brands on twitter who've managed to create such an identity around the character set and the limitations it has. And it's a huge part of our success story because it's as public a face for us, if not more public a face, than our work that we do with our our broadcast partners in major games around the globe. Another thing I was thinking about, and and please hop in here if if I'm reaching, just in talking about the data and uh, from what I understand, it's not open source. Do you see any potential benefits of it if it was open source it's a very difficult balance um we invest huge sums of money in collecting data every year 
And, and like any business, we, we need to be able to recoup that. If we open sourced everything, that's not going to be possible just from a straightforward commercial model. So the costs of doing something versus the revenue get we would get back in, it's just not going to be possible. Mm-hmm. I think what we have done is we've been more than willing to part with educational institutions um, and do things with the likes of Columbia. We have things like our pro forum where people can write abstracts and propose what the data may be looked at for research, what could be done with new sources of data. We made some of our Premier League tracking data uh, that we we sort of work with uh, Kyron Hago and Trackab on there. We made some of that available and there was presentations used uh, that sort of merged our tracking data and our performance data at our OptiPro forum yesterday in London. I think we've got a commitment um, and we've always had a commitment to furthering this area of, of sports data and sports analytics. But there's a very delicate balance. We're no two ways about it. We are a business. And we have to operate as a business. We have to be able to commercialize what we collect. And I think so far we, we've done a very good job of working with people and in some ways working with the, the right people um, who really are going to not just do something that's, okay, this is a, a different kind of bar chart, but really, really move the needle and take the industry as a whole on and, and drive it forward. That's very much our commitment to it. And we've done that with our league partners. We had the Manchester City Analytics Project a couple of years ago where we open sourced things. We worked here in the States, not in uh, soccer, but actually in rugby with AIG where we open sourced uh, a huge number of games on the uh, All Blacks uh, as part of a app development competition for them. So there is a commitment to it, but... It comes at a balance with yeah. how do we operate as a business. Yeah, yeah, and and the basis for that actually comes from and uh, from NASA. Yeah. So NASA obviously sits on massive amounts of, of data, and a lot of that is open source and accessible pretty much to anyone. And I think they have two kind of primary applications for it, where one is uh, a way for them to solve some of the challenges that they have. So they would sometimes do like these. Um, crowdsource like these hackathons they have some specific challenges and then they open up that data for people to to look at and see if they can come up with uh, with solutions for it and uh and then the second application which i don't really know how nasa in itself benefits from that because because i think that's a little bit what you're touching on as well um there's a number of companies that have even been started started on the back yeah. of that where they've been able to access the the data and then repackage that and, and sell that yeah i think like saying it's 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 an interesting space. Um, it's a very interesting space there uh, in how we can support these communities. I mean, it's we're still a very young industry. Um, we are still a very young industry in in soccer and and sports analytics. When you look at analytics have been going on in in other industries, be it financial modeling, modeling, economic yeah. modeling, uh, insurance, these kind of things have been around for years and years and years and are sometimes using bigger, more complex data sources. I think the the other worry, if, if we completely open source stuff, is there will be a, a lot of time and energy wasted trying to address the wrong things, potentially. Um, and I think what we're doing right now is we are finding a really good balance in 
some of the things that we can't address just because of resource, like any company, we have a finite amount of resource internally. So where can we not necessarily just completely open source the data, but how can we develop strategic partnerships that really, really lead to the industry as a whole growing and actually sort of help us grow, add another product line to our business as well. And I think collaboration and partnerships are a great way that we've done that. How do you account for um, creativity? So just thinking of, you know, obviously individual players, uh, that that moment that that's kind of a game decider and so on. And then is there a risk for like an over-reliance on data? So the, there's some great sort of things written on on data. It's separating the sort of the signal from the noise. So you've got to be confident if you're going to rely on data, you've got to be absolutely confident that the signal's correct um, and you, you're not missing something that's in the noise. So yes, there could be an over-reliance on it if you're looking at something that's, that's irrelevant. In terms of creativity, I think creativity, you can't necessarily, you can't necessarily suddenly by using data say you need to do more of X. Um, because actually, be it take-ons or these these incredible through-balls that someone like an Ozil puts through to people, very, very difficult. Because if you could just say, you need to be more of X, not less of Y kind of thing, everyone would be doing it. Um, I think possibly rather than creativity, uh, because you can measure that in some ways, be it chances created, all of these things expected, like looking at expected goals in terms of our people above or below expectation in sort of more finishing and creativity, but an element of it as well. There are things that you can look at that fall into a creativity bucket and you look at there. I think some of the other stuff that's more difficult to quantify is something like leadership and how do you quantify the, yeah. the importance of someone in a, in a changing room. Yeah, And that's old scouting technique, quite frankly, in actually getting background reports on their behavioral aspects and, and things that exist there. That's very difficult to quantify. Who knows in terms of with sensor, like wearables, everything else that exists now, it could be something that we can identify that's a, a gene type or, or something that exists there. That may be the future of it and, and how you really take that some of the physical markers that, that identify some of these things. Who knows in the future? But those elements do exist that you can't quantify just on the, the performance in a particular match or, or anything else there. There are so many people that are adding more and more to that physical wearable space that will will come in and just more data to build the picture in the future. But again, it's I suppose it's like we say we've got a resource level and what we can look at. Teams have finite resource level as well and it'll take some maybe a NASA project or something yeah. like that. That, that sort of kicks something like that off and takes it on from from other industry uh, and brings it to sport and to soccer. Obviously, money today is a factor in, in teams uh, winning leagues. Maybe not, not as much here in, in the US because it's a different league system altogether, but especially in the in the European and the global game. In theory, and I'm thinking of a, of a certain baseball movie. Yeah. Can a mid-tier team with limited resources versus say the top five take advantage of that and go the whole way and, and say win a league with data as a basis for for how they approach the game we could argue that leicester city could be that club right now yeah. um 
they've identified players in the, the lower leagues of English football. They've identified people that are, are very good players and successful in particular leagues that weren't necessarily a, a huge Galactico transfer into the club. Um, they're not equally. We're not speaking about pennies here with Leicester, which is which is one of the things as well that I think is important. We're not speaking about absolute pennies. We're still speaking about millions of pounds in transactions. But it's still a tenth but it's, of... Yeah, but it's very efficient. Yeah. Um, it's very efficient use of, of scouting and, and a model that's been there. I think you look at Leicester, I think one of the things that I always found interesting when I watched them, even last season, was that you had the manager sitting from an elevated viewpoint in uh, the stand next to his, next to his anal- analysis team with their laptop out and, and sports code on and, and reviewing video during the game. So you had Nigel Pearson up there last year doing that. And, and there's many of the, the data science, the analysis team at Leicester are still there under Claudio Ranieri, uh, who have clearly taken what they've done previously, have built on that with the coach, have found a huge number of players sort of into the, into the funnel, into the system, into the club been very, very efficient with it and done a great job. And they're performing brilliantly on the pitch. Is that all data and analytics? Probably not. It's probably a combination of that, good coaching, a great environment for the, the players and everything else that exists there. But it's certainly got a, a role to play and it's a, it's a pretty important piece of the puzzle there when you look at how others are performing and, and how others are doing. Are they, the, are they the poster boys for Moneyball in football? I don't know. Um, but but they're doing really well. Um, they're doing really well, and they've made some very smart recruitment decisions in the last sort of twenty four months. I have a set of uh, just rapid fire questions. It doesn't mean that that you can't spend time on on answering them. Okay, so take your time. I'll try and be quick. I've talked a lot. But I'll try and be quick. <laughs> uh, no, it's it, it is a fascinating subject. So. Um, is there one person in the world in any club? I mean, you've, you've mentioned a lot of, a lot of names here during our conversation, but is there one person you would say, you know, follow that guy in terms of whatever he writes or, or, or talks as it relates to data? Is, is there that one innovator in, in the space? I'm not sure there's one. Um, I will back him because I worked for it with him for a long time at Opta. I'll say Devin Pleur still, who's up at Toronto. I think, uh, He's one of our guys who's gone that route from data provider to club uh, and is doing a, a very, very good job up there in, Coron- in Toronto. Not so much watch what he writes because I think increasingly a lot of this stuff will be kept more in-house, but uh, very interested to see uh, Dev's career path. One, one as a friend uh, and two, but because he has really done a lot of work and a lot of good work in the analytics community for us at Opta uh, and now beyond in the club space. The most intelligent and or efficient player you've come across? I'm an Arsenal fan and I don't think you can argue with Mesut Ozil's numbers this year and his, his chance creation and what he's doing. So I'll stay with him. In terms of whether that's efficient from a financial standpoint, you could argue it's not because it was a big transfer fee, but he's pretty good to watch. So I'll stick with Mesut Ozil. The most underrated player? I've always placed a, a high value on, on goalkeepers. Um, and I think that as much as anyone, I, I think they can save you a, 
an awful lot of points uh, when you have a good one. And I think Arsenal getting Peter Cech this year was was great. It was really uh, important and has been big for the club. I think if you actually look at Ospicina's sort of numbers from last year, he was very good in terms of his safety percentage and, and things that existed there. So I would probably say him as underrated and also someone who's gone sort of a little bit under the radar again in the last 12 months because of the emergence of Czech. The most important characteristic to be successful in your position? To have a bit of a thick skin um, because... To have a bit of a thick skin because the sports industry is very competitive. It doesn't all happen at once and things that have existed there, but but also to have a good sense of fun and, and enjoyment really and realize how lucky you are to work in the sports industry and with, with a real wide and varied range of people. Any predictions for the future? Well, we'll where will we see like data and relations football in 10, 15 years? 15 years, I'm not sure. That's just too far ahead. We look at where we've come from 96 to sort of 2016 in that in that 20 year period of uh, of Opta's sort of history. Massive, massive development where we've gone from manual notation, i.e., tally charts and things like that, to the system that we now collect from and is is evolving to tracking data. I think possibly in in wearable tech will be massively important, certainly in the next five years, and is important already, but will be become more so. I think there'll be a greater emphasis on injury prevention, just because at the top end of the game, these guys are such major financial assets on any club's balance sheet. Uh, and the the opportunity sort of cost, if, if you lose that guy for X number of games, what what is the cost of bringing in the, the next best? I think injury prevention will get more important from that standpoint, but there'd probably be that, yeah, wearable and, and injury prevention and wearable would be sort of the big areas that I think will be looked at and, and tracking really as well will be the, the next real frontiers and how that all, how that all merges and, and works together will be very interesting. And hopefully we're at the forefront of how that all plays out. You get to have dinner with three people in the football world. Uh, past or present and uh, let's assume that language is not a barrier who would those three be and where do you take them I would difficult one uh, difficult one to pick just three but I think, I think playing wise um, before my time but from what my dad always said watching him uh, I'd probably go Archie Gemmel one because he said dad says that watching that goal go in against Holland was one of the, the best moments of his life and, and that he's ever had. So Archie Gemmel, I would probably go Sir Alex Ferguson again, uh, another Scott in there, and he's been at the top for so many years. I think it would be fascinating. And I'm not sure, on the third, I think you'd probably have to throw Pele in there, something like that, because he's, uh, he's, he's lived his life in the sport. He's lived here in the States. He's played some of the biggest clubs in Brazil and he's got that sort of uh, little gold World Cup trophy a couple of times as well so I think he'd be pretty fascinating. Where would you take them? There's a little pub that I, I love back in where my dad now lives in uh, in Brotty Ferry just uh, outside Dundee. There's a little pub called the Ship Inn that does brilliant fish and chips and you get a good pint there uh, and 
close to my dad's house and it probably mean that I get a game of golf with them the next day as well if I was up in that part of the world. So that would do me. How can people get hold of you or, or find out more about you? Probably the easiest way, just straight off the bat, be to follow us on Twitter. Uh, it's just at Gus McNabb. That'd be the easiest one to get in contact with me straight away. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? I think just uh, just those that are really trying to get into the industry to really foster that spirit of collaboration and, and realize how how privileged you are to work in sports and how great it is you get to get up in the morning, work in the industry and, and do things with sports teams, clubs, broadcasters, rather than being stuck behind a desk at a bank or, or something like that. Is uh, Remember how lucky you are to work in the industry. Who do you think I should interview on this show? Try to think who's some of the fascinating people I've met here in in New York and and just generally in the US in in soccer in particular. I think I've mentioned a few of them already. I think Jeff Agus at MLS does a fantastic job with the, the competition committee. Uh, I think Pete Wharton is a fellow a fellow Brit in New York uh, who manages pro referees here in the MLS and does a bit of work for ESPN. Is a great guy and a lot of fun. So I think those two from Jeff, someone who's gone from playing for the US national team to now helping shape the future of MLS with the competitions committee and Pete, someone who's refereed all around the world uh, in the Premier League and managing the referee process here in the MLS. They'd be a, they'd be a good two to start with. Brilliant. Gus, thank you so much. I, I feel like I've, uh, I've, I've pretty much gotten a, a college degree in, <laughs> in about less than two hours. Really, really fascinating. And, and thank you so much. It's been an honor and, and I'll be very excited to, to follow your progress. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll bring you back in down the road. So thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app. Please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. It'll go up on Monday or Tuesday. 